Welcome to the Global River Church Discipleship Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. So I don't know how many of you have worked or study on Ruth or know anything about the book of Ruth, but I had no idea I had no idea what the book of Ruth was about until uh, 2009. I walked into a church on my own, seeking whatever the Lord had to save my marriage, and it was a study on the book of Ruth and Boaz. So I was coming out of it was a, it, we were we were in a, a life of addiction and um, just it was a world focused lifestyle. It was about trying to make as much money as I could, drinking all the time, doing drugs, just spending. We we just couldn't and we couldn't sustain it. Our lives were, you know, we were battling all the time. And what I was seeing was my wife, my new wife. We had only been married less than a year, or maybe we were married for a year. She was, she was falling apart. I was witnessing it, like, and I didn't know how to fix it. Like, I just wanted to fix it. Everything I did to fix it wasn't working. It wasn't. I couldn't communicate to her the problems that I saw. She didn't agree with them or I, I was part of the problem myself, or I was making the problems. There was just, it was just chaos. And I was like, I don't know what else to do. And her mother-in-law says, you need to go to church. <laughs> My mother-in-law, her mother. And I walked in the church, and it was, it was a study on Boaz, and it was like the Lord set it up. He, said, he says, here is a man who doesn't know what to do to save this woman that he loves, I'm gonna teach him about a man who doesn't need to do anything and of his own accord, but only to follow my direction and my command, and through him being obedient, he redeemed the family. He redeemed the broken, the lost. He redeemed them, and he didn't do anything. He didn't strive for anything. All he did was be obedient to what God had set forth. So what I learned in that moment was I didn't have to do anything. God already set his word in front of me, and he said, all you have to do is, is follow this. Do what I already set ahead of you, follow me, and I will do the work for you because I've set this in front of you. I've already laid this path out in front of you, and then the redemption will come. So I learned that from, from Boaz, and three weeks later, my wife followed me into that church, and we just started a new chapter. It was, it was up and down from there, but it was still a new chapter. But uh, so Ruth is really, it's, it's a story about, I mean, it's, it's, it's Ruth. She's the main character, but it's really a story about following the, what God has set to bring, um, to bring um, a blessing to your family and, and uh, in my case, my, my wife. This is a Bible that I've, I've been, I've had for a while. It's called Every Man's Bible, and it's, it's got a masculine perspective of everything. So it's really helped me like see scripture from, a, from my, how it helps me as a man. So I would suggest to any of you guys out there, if you want a good study Bible, get the Every Man's Bible. It's, it's really good. So Ruth, we're gonna do is, we're gonna, we're gonna read the whole book of Ruth over the next three weeks. But I really wanna focus on tonight, understanding the situation that she's in, where she's coming from, trying to put us in the story so we can glean everything out of it that's applicable to our own lives. Um, So we're gonna talk about 
what's going on during the times, and there's, there's some scripture that we're gonna go over that's, it's, it's, it's a little graphic, it's a little disturbing, but it's God's word. And it was there for a purpose. And it's gonna explain to you what Ruth and Naomi were facing and how big their faith had to be to push through that. And then them being obedient to what the Lord was telling them, how that their redemption was so great because of what they were facing, what they could have been facing what was ahead of them. So, and another thing we're gonna focus on tonight is, we'll end through this whole study, is gonna be the meaning of names. Um, something that was brought to my attention was uh, that in the original writings, the names they use, the names that they have, the names that, they, they tell a story about the person and I found this um, article from uh, Rabbi uh, Benjamin Beck, and he was writing about the, the Hebrew culture and the names, and he says that the names of our children are the result of our partnership between our efforts and God's response. And that is why the Hebrew word for name, Shem, has the same numerical value as the word book. So the names are a book that tell a story. So in the Hebrew culture, the name really presents a new, it's not just to designate who you're talking about, it tells a story about that person and it really brings the story to life. So in our study uh, with Kingdom Men, we focused a lot on names. Um, I was using the uh, New Messianic Bible that has the original Hebrew names and their definitions. Um, so we'll reference that. And uh, Rabbi Benjamin goes on to say that they tell a story, the story of your, potential, your spiritual potential as well as our life's mission that explains the fascinating Midrash, which Midrash is a commentary or like a conversation um, amongst rabbis that tell us um, when we complete, com complete our years on this earth and face heavenly judgment, one of the most powerful questions will be asked at the outset is, what is your name, and did you live up to it? Um, there's a lot of uh, places in the, in the scripture where names were changed because of who these, who these people, God brought them into a new season, so their names changed. It really told the story of who they were. It was very important. Um, and even a Samuel, First uh, Samuel twenty five twenty five, um, there's a reference to the the identity and then what the name really brings forth. First Samuel, where am I at? Twenty It says, I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. So you can tell a lot about a man and who he was and where he was from and what his intentions were based on what his name was. So, so that was a big tell um, in those times. First Samuel 25, 25. Should be up on the. So we're going to focus on names, and it's going to really bring out a different or uh, more a, a broader picture of the story of Ruth, and it's also going to show us the different facets of God and His character, because they mention the name of God in several different ways. They mention Him as a. Messiah, they mention him as the Almighty, they mention him as um, the many-powered, uh, the living word. So there are different facets that they bring out when they're, what they're experiencing, how they address him. So we'll see, it'll show more of kind of like what the person in, the, in that situation is, is experiencing based on how they address God himself. 
He has, he has many facets to him, and it's all brought out by the different names that are used. So it's, the story starts out when judges judged. It sets the stage. It tells us when this story's happening. And I was digging in trying to figure out, you know, where does this fit in? How does this, how does this really sit in the timeline of things? And it says, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, or when the days the judges judged. And I was looking into some historical documents, and there was a Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus, he's a very well-acclaimed historian, wrote about the Book of Ruth in his Antiquity of the Jews, or Antiquity of the Jews, and it's basically the the storyline of the Jews in a historical um, aspect, and he says that the story of Ruth took place during the reign or rule of Eli. And Eli was the judge or the priest at the time, or he's the one who brought up Samuel. And he had two sons. They were uh, wretched. Um, you know, they, they had sexual relationships with women in the temples, and they just didn't, it was there in the time of Judges, there was this this waxing and waning or this ebbing and flowing of, of the, the Israelites in their relationship with God. And they would have a judge that would raise them up and they would learn the ways of the Lord and then that judge would pass and they would fall away and they wouldn't teach it to the next generation and then they would fall into some oppression. So if you follow the timeline of judges, it starts with Joshua and then after Joshua um, passes, they fall into the impression of the Edomites who were the sons of uh, Esau. And then there's a judge raised up and, and they're freed from that oppression and then they fall again away from the Lord and the Moabites oppress them. And then there's another judge raised up. So it, you can see, I don't know if you have the timeline, the judges. under media, in the playlist. Well, anyways, there's, uh, there's this, every time uh, they were fall under oppression, there was no judge in place. So if you follow judges through this timeline, you'll have judges in place, oppression, no judge. Judges in place, oppression, no judge. So there's the first section. So we go through Moabites and Eud was a judge and then they go through the Canaanite oppression. So you see every time that they were under oppression, they were lacking a judge. You can go to the next one. So where they were lacking the judge or the rule they were under oppression. And go to the, ne- the last one there, the next one. Except where Eli's at. Eli comes in after Samson. The Philistines are oppressing them, but they show their, their Eli is before, before Samuel. So for, for whatever reason, the Lord says, well, I'm just gonna give you guys this information. So, <laughs> so Eli is in place while the Philistines are oppressing them. So this is after Samson. So between Samson and Samuel, Eli is, is in, in place as a judge. And that's when Josephus says that the story of Ruth takes place. So now we have a kind of a window of what's going on. It's Judges chapter 18, 19, 20, and 21. Within those four chapters is the description of what's going on in Israel, what the Israelites are doing during the time that Naomi and Ruth are, are traversing the countryside alone, 
So that, so that really paints a picture. Now, I had brought this Judges 19 up to the kingdom men to kind of show them, you know, this could have been what it was. And now, looking at the timeline, this is actually lines up exactly with what it was. So this is, this is exactly the things that they were dealing with. And we'll get into Judges 19 a little bit later, but... Alicia and I were talking, how can she help me out? And she brought up the example of Derek Prince, and she said, Derek Prince, his wife would read the scriptures. So I'm going to ask Alicia to read scriptures for me tonight. And she's a much better speaker than I am. No, I'm just more dramatic. <laughs> So to set the stage, we're going to go ahead and just go from uh, just the first six, six uh, verses, or five verses, sorry. Yep. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, oh, sorry, this is the NLT version. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi, and their two sons were Milan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. When Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons, the two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named or Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. And about 10 years later, both Milan and Kilion died, and this left Naomi alone without her two sons and without her husband. So we start out with great tragedy. Thank you, beautiful. Um, and we see that Elimelech's trying to do the best for his family, and he's leaving he leaves the house of, or he leaves Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means the house of bread. And he leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread for Moab, which is the seed of my father. So Moab is only about 30 miles away from Jerusalem. 30 to 35 miles away from Jerusalem. It's not very far, okay? And Bethlehem's only about five miles. We're going to pull up that map. The, yeah, that one. So you can see where Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem there. That's only about a five-mile stretch um, between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And then go ahead and show them where Moabite's at. So you can see Jerusalem at the very top corner and then the Moab, the kingdom of Moab there. That's only about 30 miles. So that's like from Carolina Beach to Hampstead, just to put it in perspective, okay? Now, the Moabites were the sons of Moab. Now, the sons of Moab, that's important because Moab was the son of Lot. So, you have Abraham, you have Lot. Lot, he leaves, he runs from destruction He's hiding out in the caves, him and his daughters, and they think it's the end of the world. They think there's nobody coming for us. We have no, no, we have to repopulate the earth. So they get their father inebriated, take it, then take advantage of the situation, and they have sons. And the oldest daughter of Lot has the son Moab. So that's why the name Moab, the, uh, or the, of the territory, well, and also the, 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 the father of the nation means seed of my father. So he's leaving the place where God's covering is in the house of bread in this moment of panic, if you will. He he's, doesn't know how to survive in this famine. He goes to this place of Moab, which is known for human sacrifice they worship this god, uh, Chemosh. It's not even, so he's going into a foreign land with foreign gods 
known for human sacrifice, he doesn't, he must have been in a, situ, a very desperate situation. Either that or he was just far from the Lord at the time because they were under oppression and in those times under oppression they were, there were generations that weren't following the Lord's direction. So we see him running from the house of bread, going to the seat of my father and It's only about 30 miles from Bethlehem. So think, imagine, put yourself in, say you're down there in Carolina Beach and you're sitting on the beach and you hear somebody comes up and you say, did you hear about what they're doing in Hampstead? Did you hear about what they're, they're, they're sacrificing people in Hampstead? You know, that's, that's pretty close to home. It's, it's pretty close. I mean, just to, I don't know if I'd go through that, but. In the days of famine, you know, you're left with few options. And in this, in this, during this famine, this was one of what they call the 10 famines that were upon the world. If you read the Ruth uh, Reba, which is like a commentary written um, by the Jewish community in uh, 700 CE, between 700 and 800 CE, um, they did a big commentary between multiple rabbis pulling this scripture apart verse by verse, sometimes word by word. And they get to the, just two pages in, they get to the second line, and they say, well, there was 10 famines upon the world. So there was, the first famine was the days of Adam, the first man, and God says, you know, curse the ground. So that's what they're calling the first famine. And then there was a famine in the days of, of, of Lamech, there was a famine listed in the days of Abraham, and there's scripture in Old Testament to, to show where each of these famines were. Um, there was a famine in the days of Isaac, a famine in the days of Jacob, there was a famine in the days of Elijah, and then again, in the days of Elisha, or Elisha, and then there was the famine in the days the judges judged and that's this famine. And then there was another famine that followed it, and that was the famine in the days of David. There was another famine. So this is a, out of the whole Old Testament, these are the 10 famines. So this is a pretty pivotal moment in the Israelite history. Uh, for them to live through a famine, for them to, to, to have success and, and have the Lord come back and bless them is a pretty, pretty powerful moment in their lives. So they leave the house of bread, the covering of God, and they seek provision in an unnatural place, in a place that was founded on, um, from an incestuous relationship. Um, and it says that they sowed, it, most of the t- uh, translations, like the, New King, or the King James, the ESV, the um, the New Messianic Bible, they say that they sojourned to Moab. To sojourn is to go briefly or temporarily stay somewhere. So they did not leave Bethlehem thinking, we're gonna go resettle somewhere else. They were thinking, when he left, he was thinking, I'm gonna go there for the summer, we're gonna do something, make some money, and then we're gonna come back. Like, that was his mentality. This is a temporary situation. So he's leaving the covering of God, going to seek provision for short term to, to return back. That's, that's, what we, that's how we can interpret um, the sojourn to Moab. But he dies. He goes out. Something goes awry. And this, his sons decide to marry, and then they're there for 10 years. That doesn't sound like a temporary brief experience. They're there for 10 years. So I don't know if you guys can relate to situations in your life where maybe you were confused or you didn't know where to turn and instead of staying under this covering or staying in this moment in your life where you know the Lord had you for a reason, you got scared and maybe you got uh, confused or you saw something over here that maybe looked like it was a little more um, 
provision or maybe more hope in it, but, and you left where God had sent you or had you, and you went there just to check it out, and everything falls apart, and your life shifts a totally different direction. I've experienced that many times. I was supposed to go to Alaska when I was a 17-year-old out of high school. I was supposed to go visit my father for a couple of weeks in the summer. I was living in Hawaii, and I hadn't seen my father or spoken to him in over a decade. And he calls me one day, and he says, I bought you a plane ticket. Come visit. I was like, okay, that's so amazing. Let's go. So I go up to Alaska for the summer for a couple of weeks, and my entire life changed. I never went back home, and the reason that my life changed is because I ended up getting a girl pregnant. So like there was this leaving the safety and covering of home, what I was familiar with, going to this foreign place for this experience, and I totally wrecked it. It, it totally got wrecked, which turned out to be a blessing in, in the long run, which the R- Ruth story also turns out to be a blessing. So it's, it's, not, all, it's not all for naught. <laughs> <laughs> all things are all things are worked for his glory that's right but it was a moment in my life where i was supposed to go to a, into a temporary situation and i was sidetracked for 20 years yeah 20 years so I'm, i don't know if any of you guys can relate to that but um it's It's interesting, and, and you just don't know what's going to happen. And Ruth doesn't know what's going to happen either. She, I mean, she, she her sons decide, okay, we're just going to settle down. We're going to get, we're going to get married and start families here. This is, this is where we're at. So they lose their leadership, their father, in this foreign land where they worship foreign gods, and they bring these Moabite women into their family. And that's where we're at. So maybe Alicia can read uh, verse six through 15. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law in tow, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? Of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, and you need to do the same. So Naomi, without a husband, without her sons, decides, well, here's, that the Lord is providing for his people again. There's good things happening back home. Let's go there. So she had, she had this whole thing planned out. She, you know, she had to pack up all her stuff. She had to sell everything. She had to you know, f- uh, get transportation, you know, whatever. She had to 
get her donkeys or camels or whatever, all strapped down. And then she leaves, and then she says, wait. You guys don't have to come with me. She goes through all that. So she's got to be mulling this over this whole time. How am I going to provide for these two women? How is this going to work? What's God going to do for me when I get there? Where's my provision going to come from? And she's just doing her thing. She's packing. She's getting things going. She knows she has to go. She's in the midst of the travel, and she finally realizes, I can't do anything for you girls. You really need to go back home. So... What are they going home to? They're going home to this God that they grew up with, that they were familiar with. There are actually multiple gods, I believe. Uh, this one just being the most uh, prominent of the gods in Moab. Their families, their, you know, their friends, everybody they grew up with. And they say, no, we want to go with you. She made such an impact on them with her lifestyle over the last 10 years that they wanted to be with her. They wanted what she had. They didn't want what they were familiar with and grew up with anymore. They would rather traverse the countryside with their mother-in-law than go back to where their safety was. So... Orpah eventually secedes and says, okay, I'll, I'll go back. But Naomi clings to her. Now, this is, this is what they're up against. And I want to share Judges 19 with you guys. It's a little bit, like we said, this is a little graphic, and it's, it's right at the time frame of what, what's going on right now. This is what they have to deal with. And this is the story of the Levite and his concubine. So, in those days, Israel had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day, he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judah to be his concubine. But she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. About four months, her, after about four months, her husband set out to Bethlehem to speak personally to her and persuade her to come back. He took with him a servant, a pair of donkeys. When he arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. Her father urged him to stay a while, so he stayed three days eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, the man was up early, ready to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, have something to eat before you go. So the two of them sat down together and they had something to eat and drink. And the woman's father said, please stay another night and enjoy yourself. And the man got up to leave, but his father-in-law kept urging him to stay. So he finally gave in and stayed the night. On the morning of the fifth day, he was up early again, ready to leave. And again, the woman's father said, you have something to eat. Then you can, then you can leave after this afternoon. So they had another day of feasting, and later at the, as the man and his concubine and servants were preparing to leave, his father-in-law said, look, it's almost evening. Stay the night and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow you can get up early and be on your way. But this time the man was determined to leave. So he took his two saddled donkeys and his concubine and headed in the direction of Jabus, that is Jerusalem. It has... It was late in the day when he heard Jabus near Jabus, and the manservant said to him, let's not stop this Jebusite's town and spend the night there. Let's stop. And the master said, no, we, can, we can't stay in this foreign town where there's no Israelites. Instead, we will go to Gibeah. Come on, let's try to get as far as Gibeah or Ramah and I'll spend the night in one of those towns. So Gibeah is a, an Israelite town, and it's just north of Jerusalem, about three or four miles north of Jerusalem. It's not very far from Jerusalem. So then we'll spend the night in, in one of those towns. So they went on, the sun was setting as they came to Gibeah, 
in the town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night. They rested in the town square, but nobody took them in for the night. And that evening, an old man came home from his work in the fields, and he was from the hillside country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gibeah, where the people were from the tribe of Benjamin. And when he saw the traveler sitting in the town square, he asked him, where were you from and where were you going? We have been in Bethlehem in, in Judah, the man replied. We are on our way to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, which is my home. I traveled to Bethlehem and now I'm returning home, but no one has taken me in for the night, not even have they in everything, even though they, we have everything we need. We have straw, feed, our donkeys, plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. You're welcome to stay with me, the old man said, and I'll give you anything you might need. But whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed the donkeys, and after they washed their feet, and they ate and they drank together. While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door, shouting to the old man, bring out the man who was staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing, for this man is a guest in my house, and such a thing would be shameful. Here, take my virgin daughter and his, this man's concubine. I'll bring them out to you, and you, you can abuse them and do what you like, but do not... Don't do such a shameful thing to this man. But they wouldn't listen to him, so the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door, and the men of the town abused her all night, taking turns, raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go, and at daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying, and she collapsed at the door of the house and laid there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, there laid his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up, let's go, but there was no answer. So he put her body on his donkey and took her home. When he got home, he took a knife and he cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces and sent, he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territories of Israel. And everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? So this happened. We saw where Bethlehem was in relationship with Moab. Bethlehem was five miles south of Jerusalem. The one previous to that. So this Gibeah, this town of Gibeah, where this atrocity took place, is only about three miles, less than the distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, north of Jerusalem. So it's about eight miles. So she's going back to Bethlehem, and this atrocity is happening in Gibeah at the same time. So that's the distance from those two places is from Carolina Beach to 17th Street. That's, that's nine miles. So, and, they're, and that's where they're going alone. And they're heading through this countryside where men in, of Israel are capable of these things. This story ends later on in a, in a war where they put the sword to Gibeah and they, uh, they are reckoned with, um, with the Lord's vengeance. They kill them, not just the men, they kill every everything. They annihilate that town um, for their wrongdoings. So there is justice. Uh, and, but that that's what it took for that justice to take place. They had to, they had to experience that kind of an atrocity for them to say, okay, we need to do something about it. So that's the time. That's what they're dealing with. That's what they're looking forward to as they decide to travel the countryside alone, two women with no no means to support themselves, no provision, no, no family nearby. They're, they are walking in faith, 100% in faith. There is nothing, there's nothing protecting them. So Orpah had a good, she had good reason, to, or she felt she had good reason to not 
to not travel this countryside, to stay where she is safe and protected, even though what she was familiar with, they still partook in human sacrifices. She didn't want to leave that, that nation because it was better for her to be there than to be in Israel. So we can go on to uh, just these few verses here, Alicia, 16 through 18. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey, and when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Ruth decides in that moment to, take, to, to change her own identity. She's not just going with her to travel. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my God. So before we get to this point, um, when Naomi was talking about, uh, I have to go back because I missed this part when Naomi was talking about the Lord uh, was providing for his people again, she was talking about uh, Jehovah, the Messiah pre-incarnate. So there was this sense of who God was as, as a, a deliverer. That's who she was referencing. She said, our deliverer, our Messiah pre-incarnate, he is blessing Bethlehem, so we need to return there. And then when she tells the girls to go back to their, their father and mother's homes, she blesses them again in the name of Lord Jehovah, the Messiah pre-incarnate. So she's referencing God throughout this as the Savior, as the Messiah or the uh, re Redeemer. But as Naomi gets... As, as Ruth decides no, she takes a stand. She says, no, your God will be my God. She says, your God, she says, God Elohim, your Elohim, the living word, the many-powered. So she was emphasizing how great she saw this God of Naomi's, how amazing and mo mo most powerful he was. She was speaking of him in this grand vision of who God really is to her now, this God of Naomi, that's my God. She made the decision right there that she is gonna serve the true God, the most powerful God, the living word, the one of many powers. So she made that choice in faith, she had no reason to believe that Naomi was gonna be able to provide for her. It was just her, her, um, it was just her and Naomi, and she had no reason to believe Naomi had any family that was gonna protect them. She had no 
She had no way, she wasn't gonna be remarried. It was just her loyalty to Naomi that kept her going. It was straight loyalty to Naomi and to this God that she now knows as the true God. This God that she knows not only as the almighty and all powerful and living word, she also knows him as this Messiah now and pre-incarnate because that's who, I mean, being with Naomi, she would have learned all the different facets of who God really is over, over this 10-year period. So they decide to go back, and, and Naomi comes back into town, and everybody knows her. Everybody knows who Naomi is. They must have, she had to have been in a, a, this position of stature for people to see her coming in after 10 years saying, look, and look it's Naomi, everyone, you know? Um, but she's not, uh, she is not living up to her own name. Her, Naomi means... Um, pleasant, and she does not feel, my delight, and she does not feel like her life reflects who she is. She says, don't call me my delight any longer. I am not a delightful person. My life is not delightful. She says, the Lord Jehovah, the pre-incarnate Messiah, has testified against me and the almighty Shaddai has afflicted me. She calls him the Messiah pre-incarnate and then the almighty representing that he has all power. He can do whatever he wants and he chose to afflict me this way. So call me Mara, call me, I am bitter. He is and, she, and that's, that's where we're gonna leave off on the, this first chapter of Ruth is, you know, that she's in a bitter place. So we're gonna see how God can reverse this tragedy um, or how he does reverse tragedy and the fact that things were set in place so many years prior to, um, to this taking place. And one of those things is in Leviticus. Where is it at? Leviticus. It's uh it's about harvesting the fields. I had it marked. Well, it's about their harvesting their fields, and what the law says is that when you go and harvest your field, when you do your daily work, leave some of the outside edges. Don't pick up what you dropped, because we're gonna leave that for the poor, and for the foreign, for the widows. We're gonna leave that for those who can't do for themselves. We're gonna leave this, they can come behind you and they can pick up these remnants, these scraps. So he put this in place to provide for people in this situation um, in where Naomi and, and Ruth find themselves. And this was hundreds of years, th this was thousands of years earlier, hundreds of years, you know, this was a long time before this. Um, and he gave these laws to the Israelites. So, which made me think about, you know, what. Where in my life am I allowing others to glean? Am I, am I trying to take everything that I can get my hands on? You know, in, in, like in construction, if I'm trying to bid every single job that comes across, or if I'm, if I'm you know, upset that I lose a job, you know, isn't that, isn't that in a sense allowing for someone else maybe who, who is more needy, more, you know, 
desiring this to capture that? Isn't that allowing, that's leaving the outside edges, that's not picking up the things I've dropped, you know, in that industry. So there are ways in that where you can say, yes, I can move past this without concern, without feeling like I've lost something or I missed something. But that's not what the world wants you to, that's not how they're teaching you. The world says you need to get everything you can get your hands on. That's how you succeed, by being the best of the best of the best. But God puts us in place where you need to allow for those things to fall to the side and allow for others to come in behind you so that they can get their provision. And you're blessing them by walking away sometimes from a job. Or you're blessing them by, by saying, it's okay that I didn't get that sale. Um, or I didn't, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure how, who, what other kind of career out there do you think, uh, can, can anybody think of that you would be able to let the outside edges go or, or drop one or two to uh, let someone else pick up. I know sales would be one thing, you know, not striving for every single sale, um, letting maybe a, a smaller sale or, or somebody less, less experienced come in behind you and pick up something, you know. Um, the, food the food stores, yes, they, they every week, and, and since, since COVID, they, they have been even more willing uh, to to provide food from the food stores, they're, they're, we're not getting the the day old you know expired stuff anymore. We're getting good food and quality things to give to those around us, and it it's coming from their overstocks. So uh, that's just a huge blessing that that I think we all need to uh, give the glory to. Alicia's going to bring you a mic. And you're talking about leaving some. Well, I was in the country one day, and I seen these sweet potatoes after they had uh, gotten theirs out. And so I went up to the place there, and I said, um, what are you going to do with those sweet potatoes? Why would you leave them in the field? And he says, those are for anybody that wants to take them. We got all we need. So yeah. that was such a... Good example of what you're talking about, leaving some for others to come in and get. Hey, right. Wasn't that nice? I like that. I like that. <laughs> so Pastor found it for me. Thank you, Pastor. It's Leviticus 23, 22. He says, um, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. And do not pick up what you harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and for the foreign living amongst you. I am the Lord your God. Like yeah, it's like almost like a tithe. I mean, it's, but it's also continuing doing your work in excellence, but not concerning yourself with that little bit extra. Because it, once you start focusing on grabbing everything available to you, it becomes an idol to you. It becomes your focus. And you, you don't allow yourself freedom. You start, you start becoming ensnared by your task because you have to focus so intently on it. You can't even focus on the Lord. I just wanted to say that if you go to Leviticus 2730, it actually says the tithe to the Lord. It says one-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. So that, there's also a tithe unto the Lord, but the scripture that you just read, that's very different. That is setting that aside for, for the poor and the needy. So I wanted to set this up as kind of like a, a more interactive. I didn't get to, I didn't mention that earlier. So uh, feel free if you guys have any comments or any questions, now would be a good time to discuss any of that. Bill, you gotta, you go ahead and raise your hand and we can bring a mic. When you spoke about sales earlier, uh, then there are other areas of our society and business where actually, is profitable. I hate to say this, but sometimes being unemployed is a profitable, profitable state to be in because it makes you realize a lot of things. 
And unless you've been there, and I have not been there, uh, but maybe uh, once in my life, and like recently back in January, uh, Wilmington Health just told all nine of us at once, look, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> they called us in for a meeting, and we were all stunned. And I, you know, I looked at the gleaning from that. I didn't see it at first. I, didn't, I did not see it at first. And yet, uh, right now, there are 40 million people applying for unemployment, and probably much more than that. But that's the statistic I heard. There is a gleaning or a blessing in that. Because now that that has happened, I have been at total peace. Provision is there. I really have nothing to worry about. So there is a blessing in those moments, as you said. Uh, it could be sales. It could be security. It could be so many different areas of your life if you would just realize the blessing in it. And it's really, it's counter-worldly uh, it thinking. It is. To, it's counter To allow thinking. for someone to glean from what you're doing, right? It's, Pastor Terry. Well, I, I just wanted to say that if you give, get, if you, well, I know everyone will be tested, okay? We'll get to a point in time when we don't have anything at all. And I've, I've uh, counseled many people who want me to pray for their finances, and what I tell them to do is just lay your bills on the table. And if you got 800 short and you can't pay for it, just tell the Lord, I can't pay for that. Uh, and take, first thing you do is you take out your tithe. And then, and then from then on, you just let the Lord bless you. So I think that's something that Ruth could have done. Uh, I don't know what the, her spiritual condition was at that time. But you have to just say, hey. God, you've got me. I'm on your, I'm on your payroll. <laughs> I That's do right. what you ask me to do. So, um, yeah, it was, it's a really against, it's, it's like, it's counter-worldly wisdom um, to allow for others to come up behind you and glean from what you're doing. Um, so, and now, with so many bills talking about 40 million people in need of work. I mean, I would challenge you to think about your life and, and what you do on your daily and think about where are you allowing others to glean from you, if, if at all. Or is what you're doing so important that you have to capture every bit of it? Because that, that's a very godly principle. And trying to amass everything you can get your hands on, however you can relate that to your own life, is not gonna allow others to be blessed. Pastor. I just thought it was really insightful, Daniel. You, put, you pointed out the word Shem, that means name is a book. Mm -hmm. And it just, uh, your name is a book that tells the story and one day you'll give an account that of what was your potential and your actual destiny. Mm -hmm. That just uh, that kind of just rocked me. My mom turned over and says, "Yeah, that's your name, Seeker of Truth." And I'm like, I, I, "But it's true. I I really I want to know the truth." You know, you the, think of that movie. You don't really want to know the truth. Yeah, I need to know the truth. But I do. I just like so your name, and I like that some of in our congregation have changed their names. Um, to re to be relevant to where they believe God has called them into destiny. I'm thinking of Mary Esther and others, but we see that also when when uh, Saul became Paul, uh, Jacob became Isaac, mm -hmm. you know, he became uh, Israel. <clears throat> Isaac became Israel. So um, just met, you might meditate on that. What's my life story? <laughs> and it might it might change. You, you, you know, the more you dig into it. I remember when I was. When I first found out what my name meant, um, it was told to me, and I was, it was God is my judge. 
And I felt like, well, nobody can judge me. Only God can judge me. <laughs> well, after we came here to Global River and we started really digging deep into who God was and what he had in store for us, I found out that there's another meaning of the name Daniel, and that is the one who judges what is God. So it really speaks into discernment versus this proud you know, person who only can be judged by, by him. So I'm, I'm claiming that identity. If only they knew your beginning and how true that was. <laughs> <laughs> because he was raised Jehovah Witness and he knew that what he was reading was not matching up with what they were telling him. And he always knew who God was. And nobody could ever tell him any different than what he was reading. So you've always, it's a, it's a beautiful gift from God that you've always had, is being able to judge what is him and what isn't, and that gift of discernment. And one thing that I wanted to point out, there's a, this is just how I interpret it. I think part of the reason why Naomi, aside from Ruth, but why Naomi ends up getting blessed is that she's, she's lost everything, she's bitter, and I was really trying to put my place, put myself in her shoes there earlier, and I just started crying to be able to just partially step into what it must have been like to be in that situation. But you go back to the verse 6, then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. Even though she was bitter, which to me that means she was angry with God. She was frustrated with him. Why would he smite me? Why would he remove his hand from me? Why would he take away my husband and my sons? Why would he do that? And she was bitter. But instead of running away from God and holding on to that bitterness as a new identity and staying in a dark place, she chose to run to a land where the Lord was blessing people, which tells me she chose to run towards God despite having that bitterness, despite feeling that she still ran towards God. And she truly and honestly could have, I think, kept Ruth from being with her. And you, because when you, we all know those people that wear bitterness and unforgiveness like a garment. And so to me, there's something really powerful about Naomi letting herself be loved by Ruth with a fervent, passionate love and a loyalty that not many of us ever experience. And that rocks me to my core. And that's just something that I think is very easy to overlook and it's very powerful. And I think because Naomi chose to run towards God and allow herself to be loved by Ruth, that opens up the door for the Lord to move in your life. I think that if we, we have to run towards him for him to be able to work in our life. You have to, like Bill, with you being on unemployment and it being a blessing, it's because you're running towards God and you're laying your life down for him. It allows him to move, so it's just very important. Let her bring you the mic, Pat. Everybody at home wants to hear you. Oh, oh, I forget about that. No, I just, um, when I read that the first time, I was confused by it. But then I realized that Naomi had to be the example that Ruth was following. She had to be God's light to her. Otherwise, her whole life would have been useless. It would have been worthless. There would have been no stream for her to follow. It would have just been a false God. That's and right. that's, Naomi didn't stand for that, even though she was bitter. That's right? Right, right. Amen. Marion? Marion's got something, Alicia. And then Patsy. No. Oh, okay. Just, just the fact that the uh, town welcomed her back, 
and they said she's home, she must have set a good example before she left. Yeah. So you know, welcomed her back. You, with you open know, arms. they said they recognized her right away, and they welcomed her back. So she left a good. That's right. The other thing in that statement about your God will be my God, I'll die where you die, she's completely surrendered and sold out. Yeah, 100%. Loyalty and complete surrender. God just, you see that as a pattern. He honors that. So he's going to honor Naomi for setting that example. She had to have been the one setting the example. Her, Elimelech wasn't there. The leader of the family wasn't there. He wasn't, help, you know, spearheading their spiritual growth or their relationship with Christ. Naomi had to take take charge of that. Um, so she had to set that example. He's going to bless her for it, for sure. I just Jason. really wanted to share really quick. Um, it's funny to me, going back to the name thing, how Naomi names herself bitterness, Mara, but no one refers to her. The author doesn't refer to her as Mara. He's like, no, despite what you want, I'm just going to keep calling you Naomi because that's who you really are. He's like, I'm not accepting that identity. <laughs> And yeah, she's yeah, still pleasant. She's still, she's still delightful. delightful. And, and, yeah. and she gets to that at the end where she's like, the Lord has provided a redeemer for my family. So I just think it's funny. The author's like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> You're Naomi. Well, this has just been kind of an a introduction, um, a setting the stage of, of what the real redemption is going to look like. Um, I did kind of jump ahead a little bit with the... With the uh, uh, laws set in place, and we'll cover a little bit more on that next week, but um, I'm excited, and thank you guys for being here.